Well, you can take your copy of God's Word this morning and open up the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. Lord willing, we will finish um, this morning, although I, eh, I think we'll finish. Sometimes when you have six points, you go, well, normally it's three. Can you really do it? We'll see. Also breaking in a new Bible this morning, which, you know, let's kind of lay it flat. I'm okay. There are those, and I respect you, who cannot write in their Bibles. I'm one who can. Make it your own. I'm okay with it. Pastor says you can, you can mark it up, interact, bend it if it needs to be in this case. So, Lord willing, as I said, we'll hopefully finish through this chapter, and then we'll look next week at a little bit of review in one sense, which is to look at the gospel, or excuse me, Christmas according to John, the Christmas according to the Gospel of John. It's kind of what I'm thinking right now. Um, I'd like to revisit especially those early chapters of John chapter 1 with looking at really pulling the curtain back. Uh, He does something so unique there as you think of the Christmas story, so different than the other Gospel writers and super important to what we've been reading and studying. I think it's been long enough. I'd like to make another go at it and look at it in a broad scope. So that's what I'm hoping to do. And even if we don't quite finish this morning, um, we can always do that as well. I think it wrap this up because this is also John 6 just such a wonderful chapter that flows all the way so for us it's been multiple sermons from the feeding of the 5,000 all the way through the teaching that we've seen that'll conclude with I think kind of wrapping there are 12 baskets that remain after the feeding and there are going to be 12 disciples and we're going to see why there's only 12 even though there were very likely you could say I think it's fairly good guess thousands that are part of this broader group of disciples that are going to walk away. So John chapter 6, looking at verse 60 through 71. Again, it's only 11 verses. And so let me go ahead and read those before we ask the Lord's blessing. Starting just back up one to verse 59. So these things, his teachings, uh, have been said, they were said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this said, this is a difficult saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then, if you see the the Son of Man ascending to where he was before, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, we thank you for the time that we have to look to your word, Lord, where we desire to know and to understand in a way that reveals you, that we understand you, we understand your son in a better way this morning by the illumination of your spirit. 
But even as we think of the metaphors even presented in John chapter 6, that we are to eat, that we are to look at the word as living bread, that Christ himself is living bread that sustains eternal life. And even his words here are truth that communicate the life-changing realities of the gospel, to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, and that he is your son, the perfect mediator, fully God and fully man. Lord, help us see that even in this time of year more clearly. It's not just about Jesus coming as a baby, but this is God becoming flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Encourage us this morning, even in the midst of these hard sayings that are difficult to believe. Give us the faith to believe these difficult truths. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Has anyone had a difficult or radical move in their life? Perhaps a move where you uprooted your life and there was drastic change, where you went from things that were familiar to things that were really uncomfortable. Could be a move where you move states. Um, it could be kind of that transition from, say, like a high school to college or college to the work world where you went and you were very comfortable to a moment later, all of a sudden, everything is different and new and changing. I could think for myself a couple different areas in my life, one being where I'm at right now, which is Omaha. I'm from central Nebraska, and the idea of living in Omaha was horrifying. Who would want to live in Omaha? It's the big city where all the bad things happen. I liked where I lived in central Nebraska where it was flat and there was cornfields and I thought I'll never ever move to Omaha. Well, of course, don't say that because here you are. Or I can think post high school, moving to college, I moved to St. Paul, Minnesota for my first semester and I did not like Minnesota. It's still a little bit like Nebraska. It's still kind of Midwest, but I'm telling you, those first few months was like the sun does not shine. It was cloudy every single day. And I don't think of myself as someone who kind of ebbs and flows or is kind of melancholy or sad at times, but I was kind of, kind of sad and depressed just outside, just going, man, the sun never shines here. Or even maybe more so when I moved to Los Angeles for seminary, and that's as far from the Midwest as you can be. And I also remember thinking when I looked at seminaries that I would never move to California, and that's exactly where the Lord had me. It's just different. It wasn't home anymore. In fact, I can vividly remember coming home to Kearney, Nebraska, where my parents lived at the time, being flat and getting off that airplane, and it's smelling different. It's like, oh, fresh air relative to Southern California. And even appreciating for the first time that everything was flat, because I lived in the valley, smoggy, and always you couldn't see, and all of a sudden I could see as far as the eye could see and appreciated it, something that was familiar. And of course, this time of year is probably one of those times where familiar smells, familiar traditions are happening. You just feel comfortable. But anytime you get kind of your expectations change and things revolve, there is kind of unfamiliarity and difficulty, I think, with change in all of us to some degree or another. As you think of, I think, the crowd here, which there's different groups of people, the crowd which is kind of seemingly led by maybe there's the Jews that are primarily the Jewish leadership. There are these disciples, which is also the ones following Jesus, which has seemed to be a large portion, at least distinctive, to the 12. They're 
expectation of Christ, Messiah, is being radically altered. Specifically, they expect him to be a political king and ruler. And so I know it's been a while back, but you go back, what did they want to do after he fed the thousands and thousands of people? Right? They wanted to come and they wanted to make him king. So they want a king, but they wanted a kind of king who would usher in a kind of immediate physical political kingdom. And Jesus is trying to teach them. He's using different pictures, different analogies. I am the bread of life. You need to eat of my flesh. You need to drink of my blood to move them to say, listen, this is about salvation from above. Now, he doesn't say there's no kingdom coming. There is a kingdom coming. He's going to return again. He's going to establish his reign forever. But they're struggling with this radical change of expectation of what they expected the Messiah to be. Particularly, he's going to be a suffering Messiah in his first coming before returning to establish his physical kingdom. That's part of what's hard. Because they're going to say these are hard things. Who can understand them? If you're expecting something very physical, something very immediate, someone to deliver you, like God delivered the Jews from Pharaoh, you can see why these things are very difficult for them to understand. Not only because of who Jesus is, which we're going to get to that, that's part of it, but also just these realities of the physical versus the spiritual. It's just difficult. It's hard. And so I want to look at this text, verse 60 through 71, and and look at some hard sayings, things that are hard to believe. So we're going to look at six sayings that are hard to believe. Number one being that Jesus is the giver of life. We've already seen some of the opposition to this, to the people who want to say, but we know his father. We know Joseph. We know Mary. We know his brothers. How can this be the one who is the one who gives life. And of course, not just life, this life, but eternal life. That's just hard for them when they knew him because the prophet has no honor in his hometown. Let's look at verse 60 there. It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult saying, who can listen to it? What's the difficult statement? It's kind of my question as I approach this text, which you can say the whole thing's been difficult probably primarily this issue of Jesus extending the metaphor of saying, I am the bread of life to he who eats, verse 30, 54, of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. That's probably difficult. It's probably the, maybe the primary at this point, but I'm, you're going to see there's actually another saying, and I think kind of a look at all these things are just, just difficult for the human to comprehend. It's all going to require the nature of faith. But this is one of those realities that he is what gives and sustains life. That he is the bread of life, the giver of life. Jesus is the living bread because by believing in him, by eating of his flesh, drinking of his blood, he's saying, I give eternal life. But they say it's a difficult saying, who can believe it? Well, so far we've seen he is the living bread. Because he comes, and then kind of further down, 57, 58, just a few verses before. Because he comes from the living Father, and he's emphasizing the idea of living, living water. It's living, it's the uh, opposite of the bread that came down from heaven in the manna. Because that didn't lead to eternal life. Because those people ate, yes, they were sustained for the next day, but it didn't give them life eternal. 
These are hard kind of sayings, both in a literal and a spiritual sense. And no doubt, those listening, different parts of these audiences, uh, whether it was the Jews or the disciples, found this hard to understand. There's one paraphrase that says it's more than we can stomach. They're trying to translate the adjective here of too hard to understand in this context, it's not just they don't understand the words. They know what bread is. They know Jesus is saying, I'm like bread. I think they're even tracking at least this far into these teachings. I know what you're saying, Jesus, but they're saying it's difficult to accept more than it's difficult to understand. So who can listen does not mean that Jesus' words are hard to understand or impossible to comprehend. It's simply that who is able to agree with these things? Who is able to agree that you are what gives life? When we know your father and your mother, we know you, you seem, we can see you, we can touch you, and you're not meeting any of those kingly political expectations. You're not doing what we want. He's teaching to them is unacceptable. That's what he means by it's too hard. They're saying we can't accept this to be true because it doesn't line up with their expectations. Jesus is the giver of life. And they're going, but that has to mean something more than simply you give spiritual life. They want it to mean more. And it does have further implications, but they're willing, not willing to accept Jesus at this point as John chapter 20 as the Christ and the Son of God. Well, both bread and blood, he's the uh, drinks of my blood, eat of my flesh. Both those symbols are throughout the Old Testament. Remember, this is a Jewish audience. They would know these things. They're used for life. Leviticus 17, 11 says, for life of the flesh is in the blood. That's what does Jesus mean by drink my blood and have eternal life? He's saying, you gotta accept me internalize me. And of course, the manna which he explained that comes from heaven that gives sustenance and gives life. Give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, that is who I am, but in this unique sense. The sense, verse 58 says, this is the bread which came down of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, but he who eats this bread, who eats of Jesus, who accepts him, internalizes him, will live forever. It's another phrase you see throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah ate the words. Isaiah, Ezekiel, even in we just Revelation, we studied not too long ago, eating of the scroll, that kind of imagery of internalizing, the same thing here, saying Jesus is the giver of life and he must be internalized for you to have life. But that is understandably hard for them to believe. And we're gonna see why in a moment. We're gonna see all these things are hard and the word actually might be impossible apart from God's grace. But secondly, another hard reality is that Jesus is not just divine from heaven, but that he is God, that he is fully God. This is difficult and hard to believe. It's hard for them in many ways. Understanding the Trinity is hard for us and it must be taken and understood by faith. Because Jesus says, verse 61, he knows their hearts. This is another aspect of his deity. He knows what's in the hearts of men because he knows not just their attitudes and actions, but he knows their very thoughts. And so verse 61, Jesus knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling 
at this said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Which is a rhetorical question because it's clearly causing them to stumble because they're grumbling. But it brings up what he wants next to say, okay, this is causing you to grumble. This is causing you to stumble. What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? We've seen John chapter 3. Jesus is from above. Really, John chapter 1, 2, 3. The whole thing of John, right? Jesus is from above. You need something from above. You, don't, you can't be saved by something on this earth fleshly. You need something to come from above. And so when Jesus goes back, ascends to where he was before, when you see that, is that going to cause unbelief or belief? Now, it's interesting because actually this construction here, it, it won't really get the answer. And so, probably purposeful in that for some, seeing him ascend is going to confirm and they're going to believe him for others. It's just going to simply lead to rejection because if they can't believe this, then they won't even believe his ascension back into heaven. And probably even more than that, if you look at John chapter 20, verse 17, when he says, go tell the brothers, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. Talking of the crucifixion. And so even that, how does he go about ascending back to the Father? It is through the cross. And so that could be even here. What then if you see the Son of Man crucified? What are you going to think then? If you think this is hard, wait till you see your Savior, your Christ on a cross dying. How are you going to believe something good could come out of that? It's difficult. It's a hard thing to believe that Jesus is fully God, yet going to suffer and die. It's difficult that if he's fully God, how can he be rejected by men? Spoiler alert, we get to the end of this passage. Not many out of the thousands are left. In fact, very specific, there's 12. You're fully God, then probably you get more than 12, right? It's hard though that he has his purposes and believe and trust that what he's doing has its purposes according to the will of his father. He's not doing what people want him to do. He's doing what his father desires him to do. And he's going to ascend and he's going to ascend this way with a purpose. John chapter three, Jesus is from above. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a hard thing, but it is nonetheless true and we understand there's even more purposes we know the end of the story of why this must happen according to the will of the father so jesus is the giver of life jesus is fully god these are difficult hard for them to believe and thirdly another hard thing for any human then now and in the future is that verse 63 implies does it more than implies i guess it's explicit in verse 63 your flesh profits nothing in salvation your flesh profits nothing in salvation. Verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life. Where does life come from? The flesh? Nope. The spirit gives life. The flesh profits nothing. You want maybe something, part, there's some way in which we, we kind of can contribute to our salvation. No, the flesh profits nothing. And the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. That is to say, these are the words that you are going to hear and believe and internalize that are going to give life. Now, flesh has different definitions. It's not always negative. 
world is a little more negative through the gospel of John. Think of John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, talking about the physicality of things. Uh, We obviously, it's most recently been verse 54, he who eats of my flesh, the body, I think it stands there to say the physical, the bodily, it's contrast to the heavenly, the physical, the earthly, seems to be immediate contrast to the spirit. You can't get saved through something that you do. That is apart from something coming to you from above, namely the spirit, there is no way to believe and to have salvation. As I alluded to, you think of Jeremiah of the words. The words you have to, similar to the flesh, he's saying, I have spoken. Those are words which are internalized. Jeremiah said it in Jeremiah 15, 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy in my hearts. So you're not gonna be able to feed, as it were, using that picture on Christ, on his flesh and drink of his blood unless you are feeding on his words, which are spirit and they are life. Think Deuteronomy number eight, we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is, you need from above, we're dependent beings, we need God, we need the spirit, or there is no salvation. Jesus makes an identical claim to that truth. This contrast between the physical and the spiritual is shown throughout Scripture, just looking at a couple places of this reality. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So Paul's saying there is nothing good here because it's fleshly and it does no good for salvation. It's not to say it's not good relatively. It might be better than another person, but it's not good enough to contribute to salvation. It's not good enough in relationship to the perfect and holy God. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the working out of the good is not. We think of Philippians chapter three, and I almost want to go there, but I don't, well, we won't. Philippians 3, 3, whole context here. For we are the circumcision, pick up an Old Testament language, what's distinctive? We are the chosen, the circumcised, called out ones people of God who worship what in the spirit of God and boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh because it aids it no salvation and Paul knows and Paul even can argue if you look at him if anyone would have kind of a way to say look things I've done in my life a Jew among Jew that is the the best of the best be saying no I put none of that I count it all as rubbish The implications here are simply that you are not saved by anything outside of the spirit giving life. You're not saved by heritage or ethnicity or by attending church this morning or chiefly by good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we've quoted before in the last few weeks. For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. And it goes on. But I like to add, that's actually starting into verse 10, for we are his workmanship because there's purpose in this. We are his workmanship and that's why he gets credit because he is the one doing the work or to use Romans 9, he is the potter, we are the clay. 
When it comes to salvation, your flesh profits nothing, which is why it's going to come back to what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And earlier questions here, when Jesus gives them these sayings, and it's going to be one thing over and over and over and over again, which is belief. Just flipping back to chapter 6, 26, when he begins the discussion of I am the bread of life, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the, do not work for the food which perishes, but for food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God set his seal. And of course, they ask, what should we do? Which is the same question I think every human being wants to ask. What can I do to receive this? What should we do so that we may work the works of God? And all Jesus gives is this simple answer. Verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So repetition over and over. They need it. We need it. When it comes to salvation, you need to believe. Believe particularly in an object that is in Christ and who he is and in what he has done. But it's difficult. We want to add something. We want to look at something. We want to take credit for something. And Jesus is saying, no, no. There's nothing you can do but believe. And we go, but what else? Just saying, no, one thing, that is believe. So Jesus is the giver of life. He's fully God. Yet you can see him. How is he that? Because he's God incarnate. Your flesh profits nothing. And then fourthly, this is getting really difficult. Jesus knows who will believe. And this is key. He knows and he tells you why. He tells you it's because they are not chosen. Which he's going to affirm in the last part of this because he says, you, 12, I chose you. That's the difference. Why does everyone else walk and the 12 stay? And he knows the one is going to betray him because they have been chosen, which is implying by all the other texts, he, they have been drawn by the Father. Jesus knows who will believe and it's because they are not chosen and every human instinct of independence fights against this sovereign reality. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. Which gets you a little comfort, right? There's maybe, does that imply there are some who believe and it seems at least the 11 are tracking of the 12. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Which we're going to see, not just the metaphors, I am living bread, I am living water, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. Not just those sayings, but this saying in particular is going to be one of the most difficult sayings. This sovereignty of God in verse 65. For this reason I have said to you, I told you this so that you would understand why some people believe and some people don't. And the explanation is rooted in the Father, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. You like wonder, because we know the rest of the story and the readers of John, assuming we know the rest of at least part of the story and he lets us in on, if you could just drop down, we'll skip to verse 70 because I think this is helpful. Did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he was speaking of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. So we already know he knows because he is sovereign. He knows the hearts of men. He knows the heart of Judas. He knows the heart of the other 11. He knows what's going to happen, but it doesn't discount the reality of here is their response is backed up by the choosing of Christ, which he's saying, and I told you, and I've reminded you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. That it is absolutely a work of sovereign grace. You get no credit whatsoever. Unbelief is the status quo. Unbelief is what is to be expected apart from a divine miracle of regeneration, John chapter 3. And it's impossible for anyone to come to Christ unless the Father gives the grace to do so. That is to say, left to ourselves, sinners prefer their sin. Conversion, change, is always going to be a work of grace. So what does this mean? It means that salvation is because of God's sovereign grace. Use different phrases. Election, I think in that sense of choosing, election, predestination, all those questions, we may not have a full grasp of how God does it other than he does it in out of his own purposes, out of his own will. But it's repeated over and over again, even here with the 12. Why 12? Because I chose you. Why Abraham? Because I chose you. Why Israel? Because I chose you. That is why. Which I think will come back here into great comfort as you, though this seems unfamiliar, this seems difficult, this seems hard. I don't know if I even like it. But you might come to, if you're like me, to really appreciate and anchor your hope and your joy in this reality of God's sovereign election. Which goes back to your inability you can't save yourself. You can't save others. Kind of brings up a tangent question on evangelism. And you go, well, why evangelize if it's God choosing? Well, go back to Matthew 28 and that this is the charge. It's why you and I are not in heaven worshiping the Lord perfectly because there's still a job to be done to go and make disciples. So he's entrusted us. We get to partner with Christ in that. We're not partnering in salvation, but in this work of ministry and evangelism, we actually get the unique privilege of partnering with the Spirit going forward and evangelizing, sharing the gospel with others. One resource, if you're kind of curious to dig in a little deeper, that I recommend to everyone who asks that question, because it's always a question that comes up with this understanding, this truth of divine sovereignty is, what about evangelism? And I'd say, Read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which is kind of a classic. J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And I remember reading that, thinking through these questions, and what it does is it reminds you, not only are these, as he talks, is parallel truths on a track. This is the illustration he gives. You may not understand how they work together, but I will tell you this, it actually gives you boldness and empowers you towards evangelism because you don't, have any worry that it's going to be you as the decisive factor. You're not going to screw it up. It's not because you weren't ready. It's not because you didn't have enough information. The Lord may use you or he may choose not to use you. It goes back to trusting him and where the wind blows. And the most unlikely person that you evangelize might get saved because the spirit blows that way that day. And to someone you think, they're so close. Why don't they believe? They never believe. But you can trust that the Lord is the one who is in 
control. And I can't help but think as you go back here to chapter 6 and you think of this verse 65. Jesus is putting his hope and his trust back to the Father that Jesus is the perfect man, which he is. And we want to be like Jesus. What would Jesus do? He trusted the Father. And I would say, if you have struggle in understanding this, I'd say, go back and trust the Father. And say, I don't know how it all works out, and that's okay. But just remember, no one comes unless it has been granted him from the Father. So Jesus knows, number one, and he knows why. And he roots it back into a trust in his Father who is perfect and just and righteous and holy and his love for him. And we should do the exact same thing. Fifth, difficult, hard to accept saying is this reality that the way of salvation is narrow. The way to reconciliation with God is lonely and there are few who will go. Look at verse 66. What happens after this? I think this is anchored more directly in verse 65 than anything else. It's difficult. How do I eat? the body? How do I drink of the blood? Yes, but this is over the top. No one comes to the Father unless granted him from the Father. And the result of this teaching are going, that's it. We're out. As a result of this, many of his disciples went away and were not walking with him anymore. And so they take their ball and they go home. They understand, I think, to at least a large degree what Jesus is saying, and they just go, that's too difficult to accept. We are out. We want more bread. You're not going to give it to us. No more miracles. We are going to go home. And they walk away, not just at the moment, but this has this idea of continual, and it's even described here. From that point on, they no longer walk. They no longer follow in this idea of discipleship and walking and living. They no longer are with Christ. They no longer want to hear or believe the things that he has said. In fact, it's so narrow. We went from, like I said, feeding a 5,000 plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people see that miracle. And we go from, let's just say 20,000, we are down to 12. And he's saying, even the 12, one is a betrayer. We're down to 11. And Jesus is saying, and just remember, I am fully God. You can see that's difficult for them to trust and believe and respond. Wouldn't salvation be broad? Wouldn't salvation be easy? And the exact opposite is true. What the crowds want, Jesus is not going to give them. What he offered, they refuse to receive. I think it's worth flipping over if you will take a moment. Matthew chapter 7 Sermon on the Mount, verse 13 of the very end, and there's a big comparison at the end. Uh, no, no surprise, Jesus' most famous sermon. There's, in essence, a, a call to action at the very end. Which gate are you going to take? Two gates, two trees, two foundations. There's still human responsibility alongside of God's sovereignty, and he's calling them to this, saying, you are accountable for your actions. And in the midst of that, ask and it will be given to you, verse 7. Seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Which just sounds like really good, almost health, wealth, prosperity stuff. You ask for it, you get it. You look for it, you'll find it. Why? Keep going down? Or what is man, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Therefore, in all things, whatever you want people to do for you, so do for them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then it moves sharply. I was reading the Sermon on the Mount kind of in preparation and thinking through this a little bit too and fits so well at Christmas time. It's like, I get it. I don't, I'm not going to give my kids something terrible. I want to give them what they want, what they need. Sometimes they might not think what they need is what they want, but there's a beautiful picture of the father's going to give to his people what they need. And by the way, you should do. But then he reminds us as he comes and he lands the plane of this monumental sermon, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it for the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I would say most people aren't going to find eternal life. Most people, the majority, are not heavenward bound, which is sad, but true. And it's difficult because we live in a society where you want to be, by human nature, part of that majority. You want to be accepted broadly, not to be viewed as narrow-minded, Yet Jesus is saying the way of salvation is narrow. The gate is narrow. The way is broad. That leads to destruction, but the way to salvation is narrow. Which we see that over and over throughout Scripture. Acts 4.12 is what comes to my mind. When you think of that there is only one name under heaven and earth, which there is salvation. It is Christ alone. It's true, but it is hard. It's hard that most evangelistic conversations you have will lead to nothing. And yet you're called to keep having them and honoring the Lord and declaring Christ to others. But we know, just as we know here, he's reminding his disciples, there's gonna be suffering. There's gonna be tribulation before exaltation. He's reminding them, there's even one who's going to betray me, as we know from this, but yet... Keep trusting. The way is narrow. Keep trusting. Trust in what the Father is doing. Understand this is a reality and don't be so disappointed by the wrong expectations. And lastly, the sixth of here, verse 67 through verse 69, that it's narrow. Why? Because there's only one way. And if you have 35 ways, 35 options, you're going to get a lot more people. But once you narrow it to one, it becomes very narrow. In this case, so narrow, it is the only way to eternal life. And that's the solution. And that's the conclusion that Peter comes to in verse 67. So Jesus, seeing that the crowd, the thousands walk away, or whatever that number is of these large group of disciples that are general, they walk on and they're no longer with Jesus. 
And there's a turn, kind of like a camera panning from one scene to the next scene. A turn to the 12. Do you also want to go? And Peter, often the spokesman, answers a question with a question. Because like, this is kind of childlike faith in the sense maybe not as strong as his confession that he is the Christ, the Lord, in other places, but points out the reality. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else if we don't go here? Because why? You have the words of eternal life, and more so, we have believed. And once they believe, what they're saying is, we will sit in the persecuted minority, as it were. We will Look foolish to the world. Why? Because we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God and they don't know how this story is going to play out, but they trust him completely that it'll all work out because he has the words of life. I think the Lord to whom shall we go does have a implication of Peter thought about it. He's a fisherman. We even know towards the end of John, after the crucifixion, probably because he thinks he's so worthless and he's not the right guy, him and some of the disciples go back to fishing. I don't know if it's so much they don't believe at that point as they probably don't feel worthy. Which Jesus is actually going to say, you're, you're not, but I've chosen you. Which is comforting and encouraging in its own way. But here... There's options. We could go this way or that way. We could follow this way of life and we choose not to because we know you are the only way. Even if it, the road is difficult and the way is narrow, you have the words of life. Therefore, any cost is worth it. No matter how hard it is to believe, no matter how costly it is to walk out this life, we trust you. Looking out at the world, there's many ways to spend your life John puts it in the first John, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, different lives you can build, that you can construct. And they're saying, no, we don't want any of those things. We only want Christ because Christ, we know, is the only one who has the words of eternal life. They know. As difficult as believing that this Jewish man who looks human that he's the giver of life, that he is fully God. For them to admit, you know what? We cannot save ourselves. And to look down and hear again, there's only one way and that's the Father's drawing and that's difficult because then how could anyone ever be saved? And to know it's narrow and know it's going to be lonely and know it's going to be costly. And to, but then to realize, but if it's the only way, then we'd rather have Jesus than all the rest of the world. These sayings are hard to believe, hard to accept, yet Jesus teaches them. And he even helps you with, I think, a comfort of that you kind of know more of this story. John, through the inspiration of the Spirit, we know about Judas Iscariot. We, we know that what the 11 are going to do, but we can be comforted and rooted in all this happens because God the Father is granting individuals to come to Christ. You see it throughout the book of Acts that they go into a city and who believes? Those who were elected of the Father. Again, it's not just here. It's everywhere throughout the scriptures if you see it. 
I think as you look here this morning and you think this is, depending on how much you've encountered this and thought through these difficult sayings, you yourself might say, well, that's hard for me to believe and to come to where Peter has. And maybe you don't even understand any of this except for to say, well, I know it's hard, I know it's difficult, but I know I can't leave Jesus. And I say, well, that's, that's the right place to start. If you don't understand, you say, well, I just know there's no other place for salvation. There's no other way to have life than apart than to have life in Christ. But I'll say, if you've never thought particularly about God's absolute sovereignty, it's just truth. It gets to be a little bit uncomfortable we start to think we're a little more in control in our life and that is comfortable. But I think once you recognize the necessity and the beauty of God's sovereignty because of who God is and who we are, again, remember, we're dependent beings who have sinned against God, who is perfect and holy and just. We need a savior that comes from above to give us life and it is the spirit, as he said, that gives life. Once you understand, then it's necessary. It's only way is for God to grant eyes to see life from the Father. I think instead of deterring behavior, ultimately you're going to move from an uncomfortability to saying, but this is actually beautiful because it means he's in control and it should motivate you not only to worship in awe, but also to live with no fear in the service of Christ, which the disciples are going to. The 11 are going to go out and they're going to say, it doesn't matter if I die because I know where I'm headed. I know I have life in Christ. And although there could be an uncomfortability, I think as you, if you've never walked through some of these and asked these questions of how does it work between our responsibility, which is so clear in, right? It's so clear in John chapter six. They're unwilling to come. That's why they're going to be judged. Yet we understand it is the father who calls to the father who draws. And I think if you sit there and understand and you get this reality of, you know, Minnesota was dark and dreary. But you know what? They have a beautiful fall that is far better than ours. Trees turn color and they stay turned and it's beautiful. California, shocking, is a beautiful place, which I came to love. Every time I go back for the pastor's conference in March, I kind of wonder, man, despite housing prices, I love this place. It's beautiful, probably because it just rained, which it never does there, and it's actually green, which is like one month in March. But I love the ocean and I love all that is there. And I kind of have a soft spot for both those places now that I didn't before because I lived there. And particularly, despite disliking the big city of Omaha, now I go, this is a nice little town, which I built my home. I raised my family. All my kids have been born here. And there is a comfort and a beauty in what was uncomfortable. I just use that as a way to think through the sovereignty of God, where again, you might find it uncomfortable, but eventually it becomes home, sweet home of understanding it was necessary and needed. And I think the more you kind of plumb the depths of your own heart, you'll go, that's the only way God could have saved you and saved me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we look to these things, Lord, and even where they may seem too majestic and too strange, even wondering, well, why would Jesus say these things to run off the crowd of people? Doesn't he want those to come to him? And we know that he is willing. We also know this is part of 
the Father's plan of which the Son has submitted himself to that leads to the crucifixion and the triumphant resurrection, that leads to your church proclaiming the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, that he has the words of life, that we can even experience that life, that abundant life now through relationship with him and we turn from our sin, we repent of it and we believe that he is the Christ, the son of God. And that we even long for a day when he will return and make all things right. When the things that we know are true in our heart, we see worked out fully in the lives of others and in this world itself. Encourage us through those truths, Lord, that you are the one who is in control of all of history, moving towards the glorification and the return of your son. We just pray this in your son's name. Amen.